listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps aspiring professionals in film get where they're going faster by dissecting the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives in the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. My name is Dr. Nicholas Quinn Serenati. I'm a scholar artist and independent art cinema filmmaker. Uh, a lot of my work might be best known for uh, research into trauma, metaphor, spirituality, and uh, recontextualizations. And currently, I'm working on a children's book that I hope to adapt into a uh, stop-motion uh, art film. Dr. Nicholas Quinn Serenati, welcome to the Make It Podcast. Thank you very much. I'm very excited to be here. Well, I'm very excited as well. And so we might as well let the cat out of the bag just to start off with. You have uh, a connection to the Make It Podcast here that is uh, uh, very intimate and and one I was uh, delighted to find out about. You were friends, pretty good friends with my co-founder and co-host of this podcast, Nicholas Bugs. So let's just start with there. How did you and Nick become friends? And just let me self-indulge a little bit here, Nick. Please, please. Who was he back then? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so I'll kind of, I'll kind of wrap a whole story around it a little bit. Um, uh, probably what will kind of emerge from some of this conversation is um, my embrace of my creativity that was kind of forced upon me uh, growing up on a farm uh, as, a, as an only child, having a ton of animals around me and having some land and having working parents uh, who, you know, really kind of said that, you know, you're going to have to entertain yourself and really use your imagination and play. And so I used that growing up. And one of the first individuals that I met and, and, uh, one of the most influential and impactful to my childhood, uh, was, was Nick, Nicholas Bugs or Nick Bugs as I knew him growing up. And we just had an immediate connection in elementary school. Um, and we found ourselves really gelling on ideas and creativity. Uh, we, we had a lot of the similar uh, tastes and appreciation of particular uh, cultural influences uh, that we saw uh, either on television or heard about or read about in books. And we just had this budding relationship that was really rock solid. And I was very close uh, to him, uh, spent time uh, at his home with his, uh, his wonderful parents and his brother, Ian, and just really had a second family uh, with the Bugs. Um, then, unfortunately, how things usually occur for young people and parents that work is that uh, uh, I had to move and um, uh, move considerably far away uh, to a whole other uh, area of the state, which made it pretty impossible to maintain any, you know, uh, strong relationship, especially of a time where we didn't have like texting and the internet and all that kind of stuff. And so, uh, we had a couple episodes to where we, uh, accidentally ran into each other, uh, just because that was the circumstance. And we've had some, uh, situations to where we plan to catch up and over the course of life, uh, grow and change and shift and, and uh, find themselves on these journeys, and and when it's and when it's proper, you find that opportunity to come back again and meet up. And I think that this is really important uh, because I've always appreciated the kind of work that uh, Nick has always been interested in. Um, the music and the poetry, uh, and he was also a great soccer player. Uh, and activity uh, was something that I that I was always impressed by as a young person, and it inspired me and pushed me harder to be uh, a creative as well, the best creative that I could possibly be. And what's beautiful about the whole thing is that we get an opportunity to have 
uh, a connection like this, the kind of projects that he's uh, helping to navigate and invested in and, and the kind of projects that I'm doing can somehow work harmoniously together to kind of bear. I think that that's, uh, that's pretty amazing and it's pretty beautiful. It's what makes this situation so unique and so important in my eyes. Yeah, I love that. And that sounds like Nick to me. <laughs> funny guy, too. I, I, I forgot to say that. He's probably going to get mad at me that I didn't say that he was funny. And he had the greatest laugh. I remember his laugh all the time. Um, but uh, he was a funny guy. He was a funny guy. He kept me laughing. Yeah, he's still all the things you described. So he's funny. He's great at soccer. He's actually a, a bit of a music snob, which I appreciate it, and, uh, and still writes poetry every day. So uh, all those things have persisted into into his adulthood, and it's a big part of our connection as well. Yes. And uh, it's always fun to meet someone that knows someone you feel like you know really well. Um, for you, growing up, you battled and beat acute myeloid leukemia. So we're going to touch on that. We'll bounce around a little bit, but we'll touch on that a lot through that lens. And so I wanted to start off by asking, how has surviving AML changed your perspective mm-hmm on life and mortality? Mm, That's a question and one that has to be unpacked uh, a few different ways. Um, So my my, uh, experience with leukemia happened at a point in my life um, that, you know, you're you're coming, you're coming out of your teenage years, you're entering your 20s, you kind of, you don't really know what you're doing per se. You're trying to find yourself. You're going to college. You're doing all these things, and you think you know who you are. And then all of a sudden, life kind of throws you a curveball. And this curveball was quite prominent. And it took a lot of energy on my part to kind of figure out how I was going to navigate it. And and this is this is such a complex thing because it's. Uh, it's been a part of my life. It's a part of my life for now. We're talking 20 years. And the reason why I say that is because when I first had to engage, um, you know, being diagnosed uh, and going through the illness, uh, and there's tons of details in a, in a narrative there as well, you know, I, I was very sure and very comfortable with the fact that this wasn't going to be, you know, my final curtain call, like this wasn't going to be, you know, this wasn't a situation that was going to end my life. And so I Mm -hmm. fought to get on the other side of that. And then I remember quickly trying to figure out, well, now that you have this new lease on life and you've been given this unusual permission to do and be anything you want without restraint, because in facing something like that, there's not a whole lot of people, certainly not my parents, that were going to say, well, no, you you can't or you shouldn't do that, you know, or go there mm-hmm. or study this or be that. And they weren't those kind of parents anyway, but that certainly didn't hold them uh, back. So in going into something like that, you know, it, it was really very much um, about surviving and trying to restart your life uh, quite a bit. And then I found through a lot of academic exploration, um, doing uh, uh, some work after my undergraduate work in uh, the film industry, uh, producing uh, a lot of content uh, as a director and as an editor, uh, and in some as a cinematographer. Um, There were certain things for me personally that I just didn't necessarily uh, feel like I was fulfilling. And so... Mm -hmm. Um, I was making work that was very collaborative and a lot of ideas, um, but it, it wasn't speaking to this, this void that I had inside of me. So I went back to school and I, I went to a, uh, a wonderful, wonderful school up in Vermont, um, Goddard college, uh, which I'm um, very, very proud of. And that particular Institute really embraced who I was and where I was, uh, or who I, who I was at that time and where I was in my, uh, creative, uh, emergence and guided me towards really embracing all the preoccupations that had kind of formed my life at that point. And at, 
And after graduating from that program and working with some incredible uh, professors and artists, I, I really felt uh, free. Um, but I didn't feel absolutely complete with what I could do. So I went back uh, to Union Institute and University um, to uh, explore uh, the social justice lens of creating work and speaking for marginalized communities um, that uh, kind of fall into illness studies. Mm. So uh, I did all of my doctoral work around creating metaphor and recontextualizing experience, personal uh, illness experience, for the sake of contributing to the larger canon uh, of individuals who have done that kind of work, but hopefully finding a, a thread in there that was empowering and inspiring uh, or at least comforting in some way to others that might come across that. And then just to and I, and I know we've got, you know, a ton of time and, and lots to unpack. Um, I think that the new spin on being ill and the cloak of uh, uh, acute myeloid leukemia, uh, so, you know, survival is the fact that now, um, especially being a father, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of feel like this peculiar responsibility to that time in my life, because when I was in that hospital, I was so struck by being terminally ill, right? What was said to me terminally ill. And the school that I was going to, and this is an interesting little side note, I don't, I don't know if I should mention them for this, but uh, I had to uh, immediately vacate the school that I was in because of um, my, my, my medical state. And instead of getting any type of correspondence from them or, hey, we're going to you know, hold off on your grades or, hey, we're going to give you a refund for the semester or, hey, anything like that, they sent a priest to the hospital, to Johns Hopkins University Hospital, uh, my yeah. last rites, uh, so that if I passed, then I'd be, I guess, going through the, the, the gates of heaven properly in that respect. So what, what kind of s sits with me in that is that I watched a lot of old older people, uh, seniors, that passed away from uh, the cancer that they had, that they were in the ward with me uh, or, you know, alongside me in other, in other rooms. And then I, I watched people that were much younger than me pass away as well. And so I, I have this survivor's guilt, I guess, if you want to kind of throw, throw that term into it of that. I, I have this lifelong responsibility to contribute uh, everything, every little uh, creativity uh, energy that I have towards speaking towards, you know, or speaking, uh, in this vein of trauma, illness, uh, metaphor, um, representation and recontextualizing experience for those that, that weren't able to survive, uh, that I saw pass away around me. And so it's a very interesting relationship that I have with the idea of cancer and of course my personal, uh, experience with acute myeloid leukemia that that. <laughs> it's powerful. It's a powerful thing. And it, it kind of takes me to this place where I, I kind of want to know from you, um, and you touched on it a little bit here at the end. Mm. You know, wh what have you learned wow. about yourself and other people mm. through your and, and their responses to illness? Mm. You mentioned some people younger than you, older than you, dying and you having this guilt around it. So what did you learn about their responses to illness that you either didn't know before mm -hmm. or, or know during your own health battle? That I was at a real prime age. I, I mean, I was, I was playing college athletics and so I had an advantage of being, you know, at the best shape of my life and being young and being very healthy and being old enough to somehow wrap my mind around what was going on. And what I learned is that at certain points of individuals' lives, you know, another rock in the bag can be too much depending on what that rock is, how much, you know, how much it weighs or how many other rocks you're carrying with you. So for older people, you know, I, I really learned that at some point, you know, the end is the end. Like you only have so much that you can really put out on a day-to-day -day basis to be able to, to, to keep kicking and staying alive. Uh, and the battles are some, sometimes so steep 
that it it overwhelms you. And I learned that very early on. Uh, for the for the children um, or the younger people, I, I was heartbroken. I was I was and, and I'm still heartbroken. And I see their faces in these these very fragmented glimpses that I remember because I used to have to walk circles in the ward. That was my activity, right? And. Uh, mm-hmm. I would just walk circles and circles in these wards and they would see me, but they weren't healthy enough that were well enough to, to try to come with me and, and walk to stay active and to try to fight it back. And so these, these little fragments of, of, uh, old, you know, these, uh, elderly people, um, their faces, their expressions, their, their eyes, uh, their struggle. And then the younger people who, who were more or less, I think, shook by how their world had changed so much. And they were trying to learn to adapt to this new, new situation. Um, and they were almost deers in headlights and, and they were also, there was vulnerability there and, there was this this desire there to understand better or to have some type of effective inspiration or leadership from from somebody that probably wasn't a medical doctor that was probably somebody that understood where they were emotionally in some capacity and they were starving for that and at that moment i couldn't provide that. And I couldn't help with that. And so that guilt that I kind of talk about is that motivation and that inspiration to just keep contributing positive outlooks on our lives because, you know, maybe it's a, it's a short film or maybe it's a feature film, or maybe it's a piece of poetry, or maybe it's a photograph, or maybe it's a children's book that really empowers and inspires a young person to overcome or even an older person to overcome in, in a challenging situation. And I think that that's the bag that, um, uh, that I carry now. And I think that that's, that's my responsibility. You mentioned being at Johns Hopkins Mm -hmm. and they recently published a study that found psilocybin treatment four times more effective than uh, than antidepressant drugs. I'm curious, um, have you tried psilocybin before and do you believe it'll be viable? Do you think you'll do it in the future, maybe to deal with some of the ongoing guilt, survivor's guilt that you have? Uh, um, I, I think that's a wonderful question. Um, I, I have to say that I'm not overly informed on what those that process might entail, what some side effects could be, or um, really, you know, what is the situation that you have to be in to to really consider that 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 type of treatment. Uh, for me personally, um, and I'm going to take a little bit more of a holistic position on this. Um, is that I think that there is, you know, and this is kind of a tricky situation, you know, I mean, I, I think that when you consider medical practice and medical treatment, you know, there's certain situations that, that people need help. Uh, people need the assistance of medicine to combat whatever they're dealing with. However, I, I think that that we can't solely rely on that. I mean, we're we're, we're creatures that live and developed through narrative. Uh, we all have unique and powerful stories to share. I think it's critical that in certain settings, in any type of treatment, uh, whether it be rehab or in um, cancer treatments or whatever the case may be, that there should be. There should be strong protocols, and the University of Florida does a wonderful job of this. Uh, actually, with having art therapy being available to their uh, to patients um, to help rehabilitate, to strengthen um, their 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 outlook and their frame of mind around their given situations, uh, an uh, an outlet to express themselves and their feelings, and it can be guided by a number of different types of uh, art practices. Uh, in crafting. 
Uh, there's something for me about the mind and the hand working in unison and falling into that meditation or that um, flow, if you want to uh, cite you know, Chaksamaha, um, and you fall into that flow. And I think that there is a lot of good that can be done there. And I know that doesn't directly answer your question uh, about the two, you know, the two options there. But, you know, I think that we always have to consider how we can uh, aid uh, medical treatment uh, with something that's a little bit more proactive and something that is a little bit more honest to the human experience. Yeah, I think. For me, I'm very curious about it, and it's something that I would consider, but so much of it has to do with what is the dose? Your experience with psilocybin is probably most correlated, it feels like, with having the right dose and then having to experiment to find out what is the right dose for you. And then also uh, trying to do the research to find a guide mm. that will be credible, a guide that will be responsible, a guide that is vetted versus a guide, a guide that you think is vetted. And then you find out you have this really, really awful experience and, um, and it's life altering in the way, you know, in a negative way. But, um, I think as these things become more common, that'll be an easier and easier thing to find. So fascinating stuff. Um, another thing that's fascinating is your title. And you, you describe yourself as a professor, mm-hmm. scholar, artist, mm-hmm. and world traveler. <laughs> so of those three things, which one do you uh, most enjoy and why? Wow. Um, well, I, I love to teach. Um, I love the energy of the classroom and of young people that want to actively learn and actively create. Um, and I like putting the puzzles together, uh, in their film work. Uh, so I, I, am an assistant professor of digital media production, as well as media studies at Flagler college. Uh, I also am, uh, the director of television. Uh, so, uh, we have a Roku channel with, uh, a lot of our content on it and probably, uh, our, our, our biggest, uh, accomplishment to date was this past year, which of course was diluted slightly, uh, by, uh, uh the COVID pandemic, uh, was that, uh, we reached the semifinals of the student Academy awards, uh, which is very hard to, to do in general. But when you're a small liberal arts college in the South, uh, that is dappling and you're not NYU or USC, uh, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're up against some pretty tough odds because there's, there's budgets and there's resources that those other colleges have. And, um, we were able to be very, very competitive, competitive on a national stage, uh, with what we were working with. So I'm very proud of that as a scholar artist. Um, you know, I, I just have to be really honest with, with the work that I make. Um, and I've kind of grown to be not that individual that will make a creative body of work and kind of put it out there and then not speak to it. You know, I personally, I have to speak to it. I have to unpack it a little bit. Um, not saying that I have to like bridge, you know, narrative gaps by any stretch of the imagination, but really kind of offer an academic lens into understanding the approach to the work. Uh, and that was influenced, um, by, uh, a lot of my, my doctoral work and the wonderful professors that I had at, uh, at union and, the necessity, I think, in my my professional um, position to offer context and to offer uh, historical notes on, you know, where a particular body of work that I've just produced, how it sits or or how it kind of represents. So that's the scholar art aspect to it. And I actually really enjoy that that particular process. Um, 
Uh, and then the other side of the world traveler thing, you know, it's, it's kind of a benefit, uh, to the job. So I do a lot of conferences presenting a papers. Uh, I've just been <laughs> brought on to uh, a scientific committee, um, most recently and to help curate a particular conference. And so one of the, one of the perks of the job is that you get to travel the world and that certainly does shape, uh, your storytelling ability. Uh, and it certainly shapes, um, your outlook on life altogether. Uh, so which one do I pick? That's a tough one. That's why I have all those commas, you know, it's like this one and that one, this one. Um, or you could pose it this way. Which one brings you the most joy? It has to, it has to be my personal work as a scholar artist because, because it, 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 it forces me to consider the work on both sides of my brain. And I, I try to really embrace the process of creation. Um, and I do it formally in some, in some respects, if I were to do a project that had the intent of being, um, uh, uh, you know, picked up and distributed, uh, or I have a much more informal process to where I have to wear the hat of the auteur. Um, but then I have to click over because, you know, the work is, um, the work is different than what you come across on a regular basis. And, you know, you have to kind of pin it up with other people that have kind of influenced you. So I do enjoy the writing process. So I I would have to say that I, I really, I really do like the scholar artists, I, I guess, opportunities that I get from that kind of work. <laughs> well, let's dig into that a little bit. Um, I've got some text here, and this is from the internet, so you tell me if it's wrong or right. Uh-oh. But um, what I have is, as an interdisciplinary scholar artist mm. uh, and, and defined by arts-based research that explores the potential of medium and discipline in liminal spaces— mm. So I'll stop there and just and just go right into explain liminal spaces and why it attracted you so much. So, you know, I I think what we have to kind of consider is at least for me, right? It's all it's all about this this pathway. And we have these plot points in our life, right? These major milestones that when we're you know, sitting on our deathbed, uh, or laying in our deathbed and we're looking back on our life and we're sitting with family and they're like, do you remember when, and they hit you with these big, you know, successful plot points of your life. I'm curious about how you got there. You know, like, like, is that really truly the success or was all the work that you did to get to that point, you know, was that really the success? Was that really the growing, uh, the growing points. Uh, did you really blossom or flourish there? So to kind of, you know, reduce that to the point of looking at it within like a single body of work, you know, the liminal space for me, uh, is that creative process to a large degree and also kind of speaking about the moments in between moments. And I'll try to clarify that. So when it comes to cinema uh, or filmmaking, you know, I think that when you look at a lot of uh, mainstream American cinema, they're they're all about these big moments. And we rush to the points. uh, We rush to the points of those big moments, kind of like what I was saying when when you're on your your deathbed and and people are recalling your life accomplishments. Uh, What I've what I've appreciated and learned from my study of uh, a lot of art cinema, um, feature art cinema, uh, historically, uh, 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 Fellini and Tarkovsky, their meditation on the moments in between is fascinating to me because I think that that's where a lot of our decision-making occurs. And so when it comes to my particular work, I'm, I'm really trying to explore those moments in between these, these big bookends that are really the important proving ground or areas that we're really learning that gets us to those big plot points, you know, or those big moments in our lives or those big accomplishments or the completions of those projects, you know, so it can be part creative uh, process. 
right? It can be also um, uh, making the creative process part of the, the end result or in a product that we produce and we put out there, you know, what is it that we're actually looking at and what are we spending time with? And are we expected to just be ingesting these very, very macro ideas in between a larger conversation? And those, those are the kind of the liminal spaces, uh, for me personally, that, that I try to engage and try to grapple with, I think from one body of work to another. Yeah. It's really, um, it, it's a really topical subject to me mm-hmm. because, and, and one thing I have been thinking about recently and have put into my own work is this idea of the sort of liminal space that is the internet or, or the, the sort of digital bits between what you experience and who's providing the experience. Mm-hmm. So yes. if, if it were 19, 90, let's say, and I was to say, I watched someone paint, you would assume I was in the room with them, but now you have to ask the question, did you see them paint on the internet or through social media? If I said I was to watch a woman dance, uh, you would assume I was there watching her dance, but maybe I saw her dance on her IG feed and in that space in between and, and how that changes you yeah. because I'm experiencing something so detached, but it's very personal because it's three inches from my face, let's say right. through my, through my cell phone. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's truly cool work and, and an interesting way to sort of, uh, go about one's creative sort of process. I'm going to keep reading from that same Please. paragraph as you go into this next piece. It says, I employ video creative writing, photography, sound, installation, and performance to investigate forming situations that direct my research around illness, experience, and metaphor. Through this intellectual practice, I deeply engage the creation of meaning, form, and function, and the articulation of story throughout my process. And so with that, I'm, I'm curious how you would describe the role that creative media forms such as photography, sound, writing, and others play in one's experience and recovery from Mm. a major illness like you had. Right. No, great question there. Um, So, you know, I'm really intrigued by our place in the world, kind kind of what we've been, you know, touching upon early in this conversation here, you know, like, uh, because I I personally believe that, you know, our places are are constantly evolving and shifting and and changing uh, uh, dramatically or, or, you know, minimally. And we're navigating, you know, all of these places. And sometimes we wake up and we're just in a whole new place in in our life, uh, you know, because of a trauma or an experience with an illness. So I, you know, I'm very much like working with Nick uh, as a young person. I I don't think we said no to anything that lent (laughs) itself to creativity. Right. And I really adopted Mm -hmm. that. And I remember when I went to, uh, to get my MFA at Goddard, you know, one of the first things that I had to, uh, begin to let go is the formal distinction of being a, a film director, which is I, I walked into that place saying that, you know, I was a film director. I just, I, I needed to work more on my craft and I needed to kind of figure things out. And like a good coach would do, right? Like good academics do, uh, what they do is they, they'll, they'll break you down from these distinctions or these containers that we try to occupy so that we can grow and blossom further. And so one of the, the, the catchy parts to that whole scholar artist thing is the interdisciplinarity of it. And the fact that, um, I do take, you know, uh, photo photography and photographs, uh, non nonfiction for the most part, um, of things that of course matter, but you know, I, I can't, I can't stay in these spaces too long because I feel like, 
you know, not that, you know, it's like eating too much candy at Halloween, right? You know, you got so excited that you got a handful of fun sized (laughs) Butterfingers and you've sat back and you've knocked, knocked 10 of them out. You probably don't want another Butterfinger at that point, you know? So I, I try to allow myself to stay productive and stay creative and stay aware right? That's the other part of every, you know, of all of this is my mindfulness and the intentionality of being constantly, uh, aware and in my moments and thinking about how one of the most incredible devices that man has ever made with these, these new smartphones and always having my tool with me to stay active in recording sound, to stay active in taking said photograph if it's on the fly, um, recording video, or just quickly sketching out some type of poetry or prose that is inspired in that particular moment. And I've caught myself in these moments publicly to where I've been inspired by something and you know, I broke out that phone and I used that tool because that's what you do. And so I try to do all these things. I've played with installation. Um, and, and that's, that's, that's a, I've played with installation with video components to it. And that is a, a, that is a practice that I greatly appreciate. And I met in awe of the individuals that create these interactive spaces, uh, around us. And the performance aspect, you know, I, I found myself in some of my work. I have found myself uh, really uh, directing and working with choreography with individuals that have had to play a part in some of the pieces, uh, whether it is, you know, a narration, whether it is a dance piece uh, that is being kind of folded into uh, a larger film work. And so what I try to do is I just try to keep myself open to what is necessary to communicate a meaning or an idea or thinking that I might have around a a particular moment. And so I try to use those tools and I try to never never let the well go dry, uh, or at least not for too long, uh, and and just keep creating as much as I can in all those in all those veins. And I think that that kind of lends itself to its form and its function, you know, I mean, uh, I, 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 I'm always intrigued by the creation of soundscapes and what that can do for the experience in, uh, for an individual that's experiencing a particular, uh, uh, project, uh, in your meaning making process. Um, uh, you know, but all of it, all of it has to come around to story, you know, and, um, I think it's very important that you're constantly thinking about the narrative as a whole and how your choices in medium help translate or articulate those ideas or those stories that you're trying to share with the world, which is, which is, you know, very, very important that you consider and weigh all those options. Yeah. And I want to talk a little bit about, and this touches on a little bit of, of, some of the things you talked about in that, in that response. Um, I want to talk about the documentary taking chance mm. and taking chance is a documentary that follows the making of an original blues album for the international blues competition in Memphis, Tennessee. Mm. And the film follows the reigning blues band members, RJ and Eric, as they write and produce an original album for this competition in less than 20 hours. And what this reminds me of right away, just to contextualize it is the 48 hour film festival. (laughs) And, um, you talked about a little bit about, Hey, I'm a filmmaker and going into that space and the 48 across the nation is really the testing ground for that theory that people have about themselves. Oftentimes a filmmaker will enter a 48 just to see, do I have what it takes Um, what can I do at a very low budget, high creativity? You have 48 hours to write a story, film it, put it through post and submit it. Mm -hmm. And this feels very much like that in the way that here you are as a documentarian capturing someone that has to write a whole album, a blues album in 20 hours. So what was that like? Why were you inspired by this? It seems a little bit outside of the, uh, parenthetical you've created around your own life. Talk to, talk to me a little about this and how you got inspired to do it. Okay. Well, I mean, so, um, 
the Rain and Blues band I've known for over 20 years myself, actually. I used to, uh, I got into production of any sort by um, signing up uh, to be a roadie and then worked my way up a sound <laughs> engineer. Uh, and it was good times, right? I mean, you know, you're, yeah. you're 18, 19 years old, you're having some good times. And, um, uh, you know, learned a lot about sound, uh, and things of that nature, uh, and learned about, you know, uh, dragging your equipment around a lot late at night. So the band I'd always appreciated, um, you know, they were, they were a local band in Maryland and they had a good following and, you know, they were, they were very creative and they were very inspiring and they just had the like, let's do it kind of attitude. And then of course life and all of these things make us kind of go different ways and, and follow different paths. And then one day, um, I, I got a phone call, uh, particularly from RJ and he said, listen, I, I, I've got, I've got, I've got a little bit of resources and I've got this studio space and I've got this really talented guy, Eric. And it, it wasn't the original rain and blues band. They, you know, RJ had moved and, you know, he was trying to keep it up and everything like that. But he said, you know, the one thing that we never tried to do was compete in any real competition. And I was like, okay, you know, I'm trying to see where this is going on this. And uh, he said, listen, we're going into the studio and we're going to dapple and we're going to make a song and we're going to submit a song, singular. I said, okay, this sounds interesting. All right. And it was the summertime. Uh, I, I, I didn't have anything currently really on my, on my plate, uh, but I'd always appreciated these guys and the work they did. And it was happening in Gainesville, which was about an hour and a half from where I was. And I was like, you know, go in there and do a cool studio, set up a few cameras, you know, kind of document it, talk, talk to them, just kind of see where it's going. Nothing else. It would be a good exercise. Right. And so we get in there and, uh, you know, not a whole lot of talking really occurred with, with me, which made it, made it wonderful. I mean, you know, I was actually feeling like we were making some type of, you know, uh, truly objective nonfiction piece to a degree and, you know, and how objective can nonfiction be? That's a whole nother conversation. But, you know, the mid 20th century documentaries, I'm, you know, a fly on the wall and I'm getting some really authentic conversations happening here about their creative process. And I probably think that that's what the draw in for me was, is because I was really in my own head creatively uh, in trying to think through a lot of the research that I was doing. And I think I needed a breath of fresh air that didn't necessarily overly connect me. So we're in there and we're, we're, we're making this one song and the song sounded really, really good, you know? And I was like, okay, this, this has, this has something to it. And then all of a sudden in the weirdest thing ever, they said, well, let's make another one. Like right there on the fly, like we don't have lyrics. We didn't have uh, anything scored. We didn't have it composed at all. There was nothing. And they were just cranking out this work, right, without any Mm -hmm. restriction, without a producer in there saying that's not going to work or this could work or this or that. And they were really leaning on themselves. And then it became – that we were what, uh, if I remember it correctly, like seven songs in they, they basically created this short album in, in what was this marathon of creativity. And it was, it was in the most unsuspecting studio that you could possibly imagine in Gainesville. As a matter of fact, I didn't even think I had the address right. And, uh, we were in there and they, we were just making, they were just making music and I was really just capturing it. And there was something that was really quite inspiring because here are these, these older, older gentlemen that, that were at the apex of their happiness. Right. And I think that, yes. that says a lot, right. Because you know, a lot of people have asked me about that particular piece and, um, you know, and how well did the album do and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, my first, my, 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 my first reaction is I kind of shrug cause I'm like, I, I don't know what their sales have been. You know, um, I, I don't know certain answers to some of these questions, but what I will say though, is that it was a very unique experience in capturing these individuals who had always been trying to achieve acclaim in their craft 
right? And, and they're coming from a little bit of a different school of thought than I than I am. My measure of success and my measure of uh, true contribution is going to be different probably than than the majority of the general public. So their their persistence on on just trying to craft something that was going to be commercially relevant and and important was being was there. I mean, that was the motivation. But what emerged was this in an incredible environment of pure creativity to try to make something new, interesting, uh, and and special. But right, uh, with anything, there is uh some drawback to rapid fire production, right? I mean, there's drawbacks to the 48 hour film festival. I, in, in the sense that you do cut, you know, get your sharp, you sharpen your teeth, you get your, you know, you cut your teeth on that. Um, but you know, you don't have perfect sound per se, maybe, or you didn't get perfect cinematography per se, or the writing could have been better or any of these things. And I think that exactly that's, that's, you know, part of the process and it's really how you respond to that. So, um, they didn't win the competition just to kind of let the cat out of the bag on that one. But, uh, but, but I think that question is beside the point. It is. I think, I think that, uh, as a musician myself and knowing a lot of musicians and, and seeing how musicians, um, musicians, I don't know sort of reacted. The whole point is about what happens when, uh, you are in flow state and you are alone in a room or you're with a bunch of like minds and you see this kind of happen in incubator spaces all the time in technology. It's like what happens when you put a bunch of Elon Musk in the room together, right? Like, so you put a bunch of musicians in the room together and you let the magic happen. I used to write 20 songs a day and people couldn't believe it. They're like, but, but I'm not talking about writing lyrics. I'm talking about lyrics, music, composition, harmonies, everything. And so that was, but that was because there were no distractions. I had no interruptions. I would be alone in a room in an apartment Mm. and I would just be me in my workstation and I would just do it all day long for pure joy. And so I think that question anyway is, is beside the point. The point of the whole thing is to watch this process actually get documented and filmed. And it's a process that just doesn't happen on tape. No, you know, a whole, whole lot. Um, there was a time before the world of COVID, Nicholas, that uh, <laughs> you traveled quite a bit. You've been to Athens, Istanbul, Palestine, Jerusalem, um, Budapest, Hungary, Bali, Indonesia, Portugal, uh, just to name a few. And so I thought you would have this um, unique perspective on what is the most underrated place to film. Oh, or maybe, or maybe I could rephrase it if you don't want to say underrated the most beautiful place to film that, that you don't see normally considered by filmmakers at large. Wow. That's an interesting question. That really, really is. So all the places that I've been, I've never been asked that question. And so you, you, you got me on a really good one here to really kind of roll back, you know, the memory here and try to think of these spaces. <laughs> I mean, all of these spaces were really incredibly special to me and and beautiful in the, in their aesthetic for for very different reasons. And I wished I had spent time in a couple of them, uh, in particular, especially in the moment because of the uh, the social and cultural impact that I felt uh, uh, while being there, um, especially from a documentarian's point of view. Um, that would be, uh, certainly going to Egypt and being in Cairo was a very unique experience, especially outside of the city of Cairo, where you really got to understand, uh, the, the, the forming situation, uh, of their population, uh, outside of that downtown area. Uh, but as far as the most interesting, wow. Um, I'll tell you, I'll tell you if you can do it, if you can do it and you can pull it off. Uh, you know, I, I can't imagine what the, uh, permits would be like. Uh, but, but, but <laughs> Prague was incredible. Uh, it, it, the Czech Republic overall, because flying into the Czech Republic, you know, you, you start questioning really what you got yourself into. And, <laughs> and then in a short car ride, you're, you're, you're pretty much downtown Prague, which is literally 
at every turn of the corner is almost a new century of history. And so these wow. buildings uh, and, and these looks are, are, just, are just so unique and so uh, beautiful. And to be honest with you, uh, if you ever had to film at a zoo, I, I stand by the fact that Prague has probably the coolest zoo in the entire world because it all takes place uh, on a mountainside. And you literally have to pretty much scale this mountain to look at all of the exhibits. So that that's a really interesting place. Uh, Budapest is uh, certainly beautiful, um, you know, especially, uh, you know, because there's two different sides. There's Buddha and then there's Pesh. And uh, the older side of Buddha is where uh, I stayed, which has more of the classical architecture and everything. And that that's a gorgeous area. Uh, I'm trying to run through a couple of these heads. Uh, in my head. Uh, Turkey is a wonderful uh, location, Istanbul. You know, what, what's interesting is when you go to a lot of these these cities, you know, like, like a regular metropolis, you know, it's, it's very concentrated. And, you know, like we see in a lot of films, you know, there, there's a lot of tight spaces. And those tight spaces, I think, bring a very interesting tension to the screen. And, and you have to, you know, utilize that in, in the proper way, because, you know, too much detail, too much uh, action going on in tight spaces for too long of a time can be uh, uh, can be too much for your audience to kind of uh, digest. Right. So you ha- you have to know how you economize your space along with you know your scene construction. Um, but to to go back uh, a little bit more now, I'm really trying to uh, pick out off the top of my head. Um, I'll have to say really quickly as a side note, um, you know, Greece was wonderful. Um, uh, Greece was a beautiful place with incredible history, uh, but I was uh, dreadfully ill Mm. in Greece. And uh, once I was actually able to physically uh, do anything, um, uh, what it was was a Greek pizza that saved my (laughs) life there. And it since then has been the best pizza I've ever had. Um, but, um, I'll I'll tell you probably, um, Mykonos, Mykonos now jumps to the forefront of my, of my mind, uh, that this little Island that sits in this beautiful, beautiful sea. And it's just these white structures with these white pebble stone roads. And, um, that is probably one of the most fascinating places that if I were to say, okay, let's shoot a film, uh, and we can pick anywhere in the world. Uh, I like small, small to be able to help tell the story. Um, one of my favorite films uh, of all time uh, is an Icelandic film called Rams, uh, which is a fascinating piece. Um, but, you know, that really inspired me to go to Iceland uh, or go anywhere in the Arctic, to be completely honest with you, and explore that concept of just uh, – uh, nothingness or, uh, extreme minimalism, um, and, and photograph something, uh, of that nature. So, I mean, I, I've been blessed and fortunate to, to travel to a lot of places and everyone I could certainly think of a, um, uh, of a unique, uh, story that could be told there. So, I mean, I recommend if you have a chance of shooting in any one of these places to, to seize those opportunities. <laughs> Well, well, we can speak to Iceland directly. Um, one of the films we were involved in and, and helped uh, get made is mm-hmm. called Another Version of You by the brilliant Maki Depp and produced by David Perry and Ryan Hartsock, who were great as well, and uh, was shot by uh, the wonderkin, uh, Micah Sims. And some of the best shots that we got were these sort of, like you said, uh, isolated, minimalistic, mm-hmm. sort of long view shots in Iceland, uh, in Reykjavik, and uh, just added so much beauty and, and poignancy to our film that we were telling about a, a guy who's traveling around the world to find love. So I can definitely uh, agree with you uh, on on Iceland for sure. Um, what advice would you offer? Mm-hmm. Um to this audience uh, with regard to creative self-expression? Keep unpacking as much as you possibly can because, you know, I think that our, our, our living experience, our souls are very deep well. And I think as you begin to um, descend into that well through your creative practice, you have to be open to the fact that, as you first went in, 
it, it may not be what is needed uh, to to keep being creative and productive and expressing yourself at the midway point. And, th- and this can be contextualized in a lot of different ways. Uh, of course, for me, you know, it, to take a trip to Iceland, like we were just talking about, and to go out there with the anticipation that, you know, I was going to, you know, shoot a nature documentary or something, right? Something that, that I could really fall into. That quite possibly halfway through the process, that's not necessarily, you know, the best creative version of the research and the work. And so you have to be kind of be open to what is best going to uh, help express these moments. Now, to go out and to make a film and to put that kind of thinking into the same film, um, you know, I think that you have to be open to what it best expresses a scene, uh, the, the development of characters or situation, uh, the motivation of characters and the intention and really be open to what is necessary to move these pieces around. Um, uh, uh, my wife and I, you know, finished, um, uh, the queen's gambit. And, uh, you know, I think one of the most important points that kind of came from that was this, this ability to be flexible, uh, and to shift and change in the heat of moments, uh, the best way you possibly could, you know, are you always kind of putting your chess pieces in the right area? So as I tell young people, uh, young, young filmmakers, student filmmakers of mine, as they're going out there, it becomes this, this very interesting scientific or intellectual process of determining how your film, uh, should, or at least your scene. And then to the greater point, your film how it should open and how it should allow your audience to connect with all of the topical moments as well as all the subtextual moments and thinking and what is best going to help complement those things, you know, so, uh, flexibility, um, and certainly persistence to keep digging deep and exploring and trying all the things that you can to be a better, uh, creator, uh, and storyteller. That's wonderful. And so many recommendations flowing in, in in the last two weeks for the Queen's Gambit. Wow. I mean, everybody absolutely loves that. Um, So I will definitely be checking that out soon. Slightly related question. At a conference in Jacksonville, Florida, in 2005, you presented on the topic, the independence of independent filmmaking and how... Uh, do you see, so, yep. so, well, actually I should say, let me start that again. Uh, cause I flubbed there at a conference in Jacksonville, Florida in 2005, you presented on the topic, the independence of independent filmmaking. And so my question to you is, uh, how do you see the current state of independent film? Wow. Uh, well it's, it's whew, just since 2005, uh, and certainly before, I mean, you know, the, the concept of independent film, and, and let's be let's be clear for your listeners uh, slightly. Being uh, an academic here, I mean, there's a fair argument to be made that independent filmmaking, to a large degree, has been around, um, you know, since uh, early cinema, to the point where, you know, when you start looking at uh, film directors such as like Fritz Lang uh, and even D.W. Griffith, when they were having issues with their production companies and studios. Uh, and they didn't necessarily see eye to eye on all of the creative aspects uh, in the film that they were producing, that the studio would threaten to pull money and to pull funds. And some of these individuals had enough resources to be able to keep the production going as they you know, saw fit. And if you look back on those films, one of the biggest indicators of their independence from the studio uh, within the intertitles is the eloquent framing of those titles. And if you notice at the arc of the framing of those intertitles, uh, they would put their initials and their initials was this big, you know, back at you at the studios that we didn't need your help to necessarily make the story that we wanted to make. And, um, of course, then the dynamics of, of, of the industry were much different, but we've had independence for so long and it's been, it's been involving and it's been shifting and it's lost, you know, it it has lost momentum in the 20th century, uh, for a multitude of reasons. And then it gained back up. And a lot of people, you know, um, give uh, a lot of credit to Quentin Tarantino as being that flag bearer and certainly somebody that really kind of pushed forward. 
But I think we also have to consider all of the individuals that have made short films, made a career out of short filmmaking, um, and how the industry has embraced independent filmmaking. So when I spoke about the independence uh, of independent filmmaking, you know, it was certainly at the time to where technology was becoming much more affordable across the board for anybody that wanted to be a storyteller, that you weren't necessarily being overly bound uh, by having to raise money to rent out these extraordinarily expensive packages per se that for a smaller amount of money, you know, to go digital and to do all these things and blah, blah, blah. Uh, you could really kind of get your story told and get it out there and have that one business card floating, uh, around the film festival circuit and then begin working on the next uh, and get it and get it going there. So where it is now is I think that, you know, with, with, okay. So I think now what we've done is we've commodified the concept of independent filmmaking quite a bit. Mm. And I think that the independent filmmaking, it all depends on, on what kind of team that you're bringing with you. If you're bringing a team that's like, you know, we're going to do it our way, but we still have all the intentions of playing ball with the big studios or big distributors and the industry itself, then I don't know if you're really independently making film per se, per se. Okay. Um, what I do think though, is that you are resisting certain process that is going to either bless your project or kill it, you know, in the pre-production aspect because no one wants to bite on your story, right? Um, and, th and that's a kind of a dangerous line, and a lot of people don't want to be held to that. A lot of people believe that in independent filmmaking, um, and, and this is somewhat unfortunate to be honest with you, is that you can rush through the pre-production process and that somewhere in production or post-production you can salvage a body of work to be a great body of work. And that doesn't necessarily happen. And so I think that, you know, a, almost never happens. Right, yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, I was, I, I was trying to, you know, I was trying to be uh, general there, and, but, but you're absolutely <laughs> right. I mean, you know, it all comes back to story and it all comes back to holding a really hard line and measure for your, for your to be determined process of the filmmaking process. And that comes with having a great story that comes with having, um, the proper resources in place to be able to help you execute that story, having the right team with you, having, uh, the proper casting with you and being set up in a scenario that if something happens in production, be it X, Y, and Z, that you have another plan or being in post-production, if X, Y, and Z happens, what is our contingency plan at that point? All of that occurring in pre-production is, is vital to a film's success. But see, we're so much smarter now and informed now and have seen certain successes occur uh, than in 2005 that I think the conversation has shifted and changed. I think that really the independence of independent filmmaking is holding a better more rigorous standard than what Hollywood is giving us across the board. Because many people complain that when you look at a lot of Hollywood cinema, we're, 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 we're kind of being treated as a, an audience that is not really well-informed and loves sensationalism and can be easily entertained. And as long as Hollywood feels like, and this, these are all generalities, as long as Hollywood feels like they can crank out that work and still and still make money, then there's no need to necessarily, you know, recraft the whole process. And I think that that's the importance of independent filmmaking is because those individuals are holding a different standard, um, very much like our counterparts uh, in Europe and abroad who really, really spend the time, not so much on fancy camera work, not so much on a whole lot of glitz and glamour that you can do in post-production, but really telling a very, very powerful story and really working the actors to give the best possible performances. And that standard, putting work out there like that, that raises the bar for everyone across the board that if you're going to go into the business and you're going to produce work uh, that is going to compete, then you, you have to have the advantage. And the advantage is being a terrific storyteller and then allowing the rest of the craft to accentuate and punctuate 
the idea of the story. I love that. Completely agree. And I want to thank you so much for what has been a truly brilliant conversation. Uh, Tell this audience where they can find you on social media and on the internet and maybe where they can see your work if, if, if that's out there. Yes, certainly. Um, so, uh, you can, uh, visit my website, NQ Serenati, NQ S E R E N A T I.com. Uh, you can also follow me on Instagram at, uh, doctor underscore NQS. Uh, those are pretty much the two platforms that I'm really kind of working in for the most part. Um, and you'll see some of my film work, uh, on my website and, uh, and yeah, that's, that's where I am. That's perfect. And I'll leave you with this. Uh, the story is, is that your dad saved my good friend, our good friend and, and co-founder of Bonsai Creative and co-host of this lovely podcast that your dad saved Nicholas Bugs' life, <laughs> saved young Nick's life. What do you remember about that? <laughs> Wow. Um, that's a tricky one. Did he just phone that one in? <laughs> no. <laughs> Did he just phone that one in? That's- no, no. I, I, I totally shut everything down when I'm having these interviews. I'm, I'm all okay. yours. Um, no, you know, uh, uh, I'll have to be really honest here. Nick's memory, uh, I'm sure, is much better than mine. Uh, I, I suffer from uh, uh, short-term memory loss because of my chemotherapy. Um, so there's mm-hmm. a portion of my early childhood that, um, that, that unfortunately is very hard for me to access. Uh, when, he, when that is mentioned like that, um, if I, if I had, that does trigger something for me. Um, and I'm trying to recall it and piece it all together, but it doesn't necessarily come together for me right now. And I, I greatly apologize. That's, that's, that's really, truly sad for me. And I'm sure Nick can tell, <laughs> no, cause you know, I, you know, I love these things. And the fact that this was even brought up, I'm sure is a hilarious story. Um, well, apparently he had a bad reaction to your mother's horses. Oh, oh and okay. And uh, because he's asthmatic, yes. uh, that he almost uh, his body uh, breathed in the the horses and said, "Oh, yes. uh, it's <laughs> his body said nay." Right. Uh, and, and Nick never came back over to my house after that. <laughs> <laughs> you know. And so, and so we kind of see how it all kind of he won't come back to my, you know, listen, I, yeah, I, I, he, I, I love Nick, you know, I love Nick and, and I, there was no way that we had any intention with horses to put that young man in any type of dire strait. Uh, but, uh, but I can see why he never came back over. I, it makes complete sense. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. He wouldn't come back to my house until I got hypoallergenic dogs. So I have golden doodles now. So now he can come and doesn't have to get a hotel when he's in town. So, uh, thank you so much. That was great. And and I I appreciate it. And, uh, sounds like you and Nick have a conversation you guys need to have. Um, (laughs) again, got to thank you for the brilliant conversation. I hope we have a round two at some point in the future would certainly be uh, be a yes on my end and hopefully on yours as well. Um, thank you so much for, for hosting this. It's been an absolute honor and pleasure. I really appreciated it. Anytime, anytime, take care of yourself and someone else if you can. And, uh, I hope to talk to you again soon. Certainly. So you have a good one, Christopher. You too. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the make it podcast to find more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It, Bonsai Creative, and the show will pop right up. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, Go to www.bonsai.film and click on Book Us to schedule a free discovery meeting and needs assessment. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.